coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. Talk Talk gets compromised, hackers make cars safer, and Google plays hardball with Symantec. Plus, it's a great big badge of your questions, a rockin' roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 238 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on October 29th, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this year's show goes on. Oh, and let me tell you about Scale Engine. That's where our live stream comes from. you got to go check it out over at ScaleEngine.com. It's pretty neat. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Alan, it is a big day for us here at the, uh, at the TechSnap show because uh, we're getting ready for some travels, and uh, it is a fall day, episode 238, last shooting we're doing in October. It's big. It all comes together, Alan. It all comes together. Uh, it's almost like the Talk Talk hack happened just to give us some great content this week. Well, it happened kind of during the show last week. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that's where we're going to start this week. We have a ton of great stuff to get into. So uh, let's start with Talk Talk, which uh, is a real, real head smacker. I had uh, some folks in Tech Talk jump in from the Mumble Room who were former customers at Talk Talk and weren't so happy. So what happened, Alan? Okay. So Talk Talk, which is a silly name for a British phone and uh, broadband provider that has more than 4 million customers, uh, disclosed on Friday that intruders had hacked into the website and may have stolen personal and financial data. Sources close to the investigation say that the company has also received a ransom demand for approximately 80,000 British pounds, which is about 125,000 US, uh, with the attacker threatening to publish the TalkDoc customer data unless they were paid that amount in bitcoins. Did they ever Uh, confirm that that guy that was asking for the ransom was actually the attacker? I don't know if they ever confirmed uh, that. Yes, so... Uh, in a statement on their website, TalkTalk said a uh, criminal investigation was launched by the Metropolitan Police's Cyber Crime Unit nice. following a significant and sustained cyber attack on their website. Hmm. Um, so as part of the ransom demand, they were given a sample of the data from their own database as proof that the bad guys oh, okay. had it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but I'll get into why that doesn't necessarily mean anything in a minute. Okay. Uh, but the way they described that significant and sustained cyber attack on our website Depending how you read that, that sounds more like a denial of service attack. But you know, you could use those same words to also describe you know a persistent compromise where you know you broke into the website and and had access for a long time, right? Because yeah. that's also a sustained cyber attack, right? Even and though you're maybe not even doing anything new, if you still have access, it's sustained, right? I mean, if it's like a if it's a flaw that you just keep exploiting over and over again, that's sustained. Yeah. Or if you yeah, if you just had compromised an account or made an account for yourself or whatever, then yeah, yeah. So the wording there, well, at first read sounds more like you know it's a denial of service attack and they keep attacking, attacking, and attacking. It's more likely that they broke in once and just left the door open. Which is, you know, a different definition of the word "sustained cyber attack." Yeah, or there's a window open. They just kept, they just kept coming exactly. through over and over again. <laughs> yes, uh, you know, possibly compromised information includes customers' names, addresses, date of birth, phone number, email address, all the TalkTalk account information, credit card details, or bank details for people that had the automatic debit and so on. Uh, they say, we are continuing to work with leading cybercrime specialists and the Metropolitan Police to establish exactly what happened and to what extent any information was accessed. 
So from that, we can surmise that they have no way of telling how much data was taken and are hoping mm -hmm. that forensic analysis after the fact mm -hmm. will give them some idea. Mm -hmm. So obviously they didn't have good audit controls in place to see when this data was accessed. Right. Uh, a source close to the investigation who spoke with Krebs on condition of anonymity uh, said the hacker group demanded the 80,000 pounds, provided TalkTalk Talk with copies of the tables from their user database as evidence of the breach. Uh, the database in question appears uh, to related to at least 400,000 people who have recently undergone credit checks for new service with the company. So that suggests maybe even more data about the customer mm. is available. Yeah, because uh, you know, for a credit check, then you're talking, you know, the equivalent of your uh, would it be social security number in the states. Yeah, right. Yes, so, uh, it's, uh, and your income and your addresses and, and yeah, and like bank accounts, credit cards, you could have all kinds of stuff. Yeah, it's a lot more money, stuff. Money you owe people, all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, an interesting attack that I just thought of now for that is if you get people's credit card uh, credit reports like that, you could call them about any loans or outstanding money they have and be like, you know, a fake creditor and Ooh, you know, devious. have them have them pay you for some they owe somebody money and you pretend to be that person and get them to pay you the money. And and then they they're like, "Oh, I paid that off." It's like, "No, you didn't." <laughs> What are you talking about? Because, you know, it could be months before they figure out that they got duped there, right? Yeah, that'd be devious for sure. Yeah, that's a horrible thing. I don't know why I think of these things. Uh, <laughs> if we just had more motivation, we'd be rich, Alan. We'd be just, rich. Uh, talk talk statement or, or less scruples. Uh, yeah, that too. Talk talk statement says it's too early to say exactly how many customers were impacted uh, because their technology is crap. Uh, identifying the extent of information access is part of the investigation that's underway. So it appears that multiple hackers have since claimed responsibility for the hack, including one that the BBC describes as a Russian Islamist group. All the sources say there's absolutely no evidence to support any of the other claims. Right, so it's, uh, the people that are doing the ransom have proved that they have the data, but a bunch of other people say that they did the hack. Uh, the interesting thing is that uh, with the way things are today, you know, lots of people will try to take credit for the attack. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why the group demanding the ransom provided a sample of the data as proof that they actually had it. Of course, the real attacker could have just posted the data on an underground forum somewhere, and you could get multiple people all trying to get a ransom, all with real copies of the data. And that also means that even if you paid the ransom, uh, you know, somebody else could have the yeah, data already. Yeah, multiple copies or, then. Yeah, or even if it, only one person had the data, you pay them the ransom, it doesn't mean they're not going to post it publicly or privately anyway. That's true. Or sell it. Because after, after, yeah, after I get the ransom payment, why wouldn't I also sell it to the criminals at the mm -hmm. same time? Mm -hmm. There's just no reason not to. Yeah, you know, a, I've yeah. already proven I'm a bad guy. It's so, a no win. Yeah. yeah. Don't pay the ransom. So mm -hmm. It's silly. <laughs> uh, surprisingly, or sorry, separately, uh, promises to post stolen data have appeared on Alpha Bay, which is a deep web black market that specializes in selling stolen goods and illicit drugs. Uh, the posting was made by someone uh, with the t nickname Curvasoyer uh, or good something. One. I don't know how you pronounce that. Curvasoyer. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this member, whose signature describes him as a level six fraud and drug seller, appears to have, be an active participant in the Alpha Bay market with uh, many uh, vouches from happy customers who've turned uh, to him for illegal drugs and stolen credit cards, among other goods and services. Uh, it seems likely that the user is not bluffing, at least uh, about posting some subset of TalkTalk Talk customer data. According to a discussion thread on Reddit uh, dedicated to explaining AlphaBay's new level system, an AlphaBay seller who has reached the status of level 6 has uh, successfully consummated at least 500 sales 
uh, worth a total of at least $75,000 and achieved a 90% uh, positive huh. feedback rating huh. or better from those customers. Wow. That's a sophisticated That's a better system. rating system than eBay. That's what I was just thinking. <laughs> of course, you know, when you're dealing with shady people, you kind of need a, a very strong rating system. True, true. And, of course, they're geeks, so they're going to like a system that's nice and sophisticated. Yeah. Uh, because, <laughs> yeah, because, you know, if, if you're out there selling stolen credit cards, there's nothing stopping you from gaming the system and, and upping your own rating and so on. Right, right yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah. I have to watch out uh, for that. But lots of additional coverage here from other websites because it's kind of a big story that yeah. had uh, the CEO of TalkTalk made a bunch of statements that yeah. were pretty funny. So uh, The Independent had the first coverage of it that was linked to me during last week's episode. Uh, then Ars Technica had uh, coverage about TalkTalk being hit by a cyber attack. And then The Registrar had a quote from the CEO where TalkTalk said, Our cybersecurity is head and shoulders above all of our competitors. Oh, boy. There's also there's there's uh, ours has a a, a a quote of her saying that they were not legally required to encrypt the data. Yeah, so like our cybersecurity is the best, but we don't encrypt your data because we're not legally required to do so. Yeah, they say our data was encrypted, nor is uh, the full quote is our data was encrypted, nor are you legally required to encrypt it. We have complied with all legal obligations in terms of storing financial information, and the UK's Data Protection Act doesn't stipulate the data must be encrypted. It merely states that appropriate technical and organizational measures shall be taken against unauthorized or unlawful processing of personal data. Which seems like they failed. Like that that description in the law is vague enough that it could you could pass or fail based on your way you so read it. I've also I've been told that it was like a SQL injection and that was essentially it. It was that was the big compromise, a SQL injection. Uh, and there was there was an arrest made, a boy, 15 years old in Northern Ireland. In connection with the hack, I don't know. I haven't been able to find out what exactly the charge is, but yeah. So it's not clear whether you know they think he was the person that did it or what. Uh, yeah, yeah. The the significant sustained cyber attack. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it sounds like you know. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. He, he used that 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 uh, GitHub repo we talked about last week, where it's a, an app with one of every vulnerability. Yeah. Learned how SQL injections work. And then use it against their website. Yeah, and being 15 years old, uh, managed to compromise it and make them look like idiots. Yeah, that's just the thing, isn't it? Is it? And then you can put labels on it, like sustained sophisticated cyber attack. Uh, and she called yeah. this a lot of times. The CEO, her response, by the way, too, in a lot of the news coverage, and she just used this line over and over again. It's not really our fault. Cyber attacks are the issue of our time. And then she'd rattle off the number of cyber attacks that have happened uh, this year. And so you know, it's nothing we can really do about it. So this is the this is the problem of our time, cyber. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, oh, I, I much rather like the uh, the one I saw on Twitter. I'll have to find it later. Um, was I think it was the Grug was saying, you know, if if the attack that's used against you is on the the list of like the top ten types of attack, like SQL injection. Yeah. You're not allowed to call it sophisticated. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it's entirely predictable. Mm-hmm. It's not sophisticated. A 15-year-old can do it with no resources. We're right. not talking about a nation state. Yeah, it's just it's malpractice on their part. And then to say, yes. well, it's the, par- it's the plague of our time. It's the problem of our time. Oh, yeah. It's, it's more like the, uh, the lack of effort by companies like yours is the problem of our time. Exactly. Alright, Alan, any other thoughts on that story? Um, yes. Uh, so there's a video from the TalkTalk Talk CEO at the bottom 
Uh, and they talk about how, oh, it'd be really hard for them to steal money out of your bank account using this information if they even actually have it. And it's, it's probably not going to happen. But if your money does get stolen out of your account. Is this the video and, here with the, yeah. with the, I, oh, here, I, I, could, I could play it a second. This is kind of ridiculous looking. Since yes. Wednesday's cyber attack on our website, we've been working to keep you informed and working with Metropolitan Police and cybersecurity experts What's she doing with her to hand? understand what happened. Investigations so far show that sensitive financial information, i.e. credit and debit card numbers, were protected. Bank account numbers and sort codes, as you would find printed on a cheque, may have been accessed. But without more information, criminals can't use these to take money from your bank account. Even then, the chances are very small indeed. In the unlikely event that money is stolen from a customer's bank account as a direct result of the cyber attack, in, rather than as a result of any information given out how could by you the prove customer, that? then as a gesture of goodwill, we will, on a case-by-case -case basis, waive <laughs> termination fees. Wow. Uh, we would yeah, we like won't, to we won't charge you extra to cancel your account. So, uh, so be, if, if, if you got breached you because get, of... Wow. If you got breached because of the information, that, and they didn't have to get any extra information from you. So if you get fished because of this attack, that's on you. <laughs> holy cow holy cow that is really something yeah uh, uh, it's like I don't know how she sat there and said all that with a straight face yeah and it's almost so but perfect. also she's like oh they didn't get enough information to possibly steal money from your account but in the unlikely situation that I'm completely making this up I mean she's uh, it would be really really hard for them to do and she's sitting in a white room with a white jacket on like the whole thing is very it's almost surreal sterile it's surreal almost i just can't believe it lots of extra coverage in the show notes that alan has linked us yeah. to uh yeah i would just what <laughs> that is really that is really uh i got a uh, i got somebody in the mail from experian which i meant to open before the show but i didn't get, i'm pretty sure i know what it is i'm pretty sure i know it's it's about that breach that was related to t-mobile customers uh, all right, Alan. Well, let me. Speaking of uh, mobile, let me tell you about my solution to an ongoing problem. Ting. Ting is really mobile that makes sense, and I want you to go over there and just take a look. They have a savings calculator you could try out. Here's why I say it's mobile that makes sense. You just pay for what you use. There's no contract, and because there's no contract, no early termination fee. Six dollars for the phone line. Then it's your usage on top of that. Think about why that works so much better with if you want to get a tablet that has data and a phone that has data. You have a couple of devices. Instead of having to get contracts and make sure you have X amount of minutes and data for each device that you have to pay into, you just pay for what you actually use. And if you don't use the device that much, then you just paid $6 for the line. Or you can even turn it off with Ting's incredible dashboard. So go to techsnap.ting.com. That'll give us credit and give you the savings. techsnap.ting.com. Take $25 off a device. All these devices are yours. You own them outright. They're unlocked. You can put them on the Ting network, and they give you the tools to stay in control with a really great dashboard. No mysterious line items on your bill. Powerful online control panel makes all of this stuff really straightforward, really easy to manage. It is so much better than any other cell network out there. And one of the things I really like about Ting is they have super passionate support. And these devices, they have a great range. Starting with just the SIM card, you can just pop a SIM card for GSM or CDMA, because they have both networks. If you have something that takes a SIM card, you pop it and you're good to go. They also have some really, really great feature phones. If you just want something to make calls and has great battery life with no contract and you only pay for what you use, look at all these devices. They have one, two, three, four, five, 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 six. Wow, you can even get an iPhone for under $100. They have seven devices, eight devices, including the HTC Desire 510 Blue. 
Nine devices. Wow, they have nine devices under $100 with no contract, no termination fee. The Moto G and the Moto E. Look at all these. These are, these are great phones. And, of course, you go all the way up the list, right? All the way up the list. There's the new HTC M9. Hey, yeah, there's the Galaxy S6, the iPhone 6, the new Motos, the new, uh, the new Nexus i. They're all great phones. And you own them outright. You get the Google experience or whatever it is that you go because they don't uh, crap it up with a whole bunch of stuff. I want you to check them out. Check out their blog. Check out their savings calculator. Put your actual usage in there. See how much you would actually save. TechSnap.ting.com. No more contracts. No more early termination fee. No more getting you to pay for something you may or may not use. You need a data connection? They have those too. A MiFi device that you get access to when you need it. Having CDMA and GSM gives you a lot of flexibility. And if you're Wi-Fi savvy, the savings will blow your freaking mind. TechSnap. And keep that in mind too when you're using the savings calculator. That if you can, like, just, just like here's one example. If you use Spotify, pre-cache your songs. Plus then you get them at the higher quality anyways. If you listen to podcasts, download them when you're on Wi-Fi before you leave. Like those two things, and I have three lines on Ting. I'm paying like forty bucks a month for all three of them. It's nuts. Taxnap. Really Ting. Yeah. What's it? Don't watch uh, uh, ne- uh, Netflix? Netflix on your <laughs> 3G there. Yeah. Chris. Yeah. Don't watch Netflix on your phone. That'd be a good one. Uh, well, you can do it on your phone. Just do it on Wi-Fi. Right. Over not, cellular. Not on the mobile. Or in my case, uh, uh, you know, in my case, uh, don't try to podcast over cellular. Uh, that that could be. That could, that could rack it up. It's really, you just use common sense. Whenever you can use Wi-Fi, you do that, and uh, it's, that's pretty much all you really have to do. And then you could have, yeah, an, you so have incredible savings. Be careful with that new iPhone feature where it's like, hmm, this Wi-Fi doesn't seem very good. I'm just going to use your 4G. The helpful <laughs> one. Yeah, that new, I forget what they call it, but oh, like a cellular assist or something like that. Yeah, something yeah. like that. You know, that kind of thing, <clears throat> I don't know. I don't know because the I thing think there's is, there's a, a class action lawsuit starting up against Apple over people's unexpected data usage from that. You can, you know, that you can make, you can, you can decide on like with the so with the Ting dashboard and or the Ting app, you can really quickly see where you're at, and you can even set alert thresholds so you can play with it. Exactly, alert thresholds is all you need. Yep. You're like, yep. oh, yeah, you know, I, I depended on those when I was in Sweden using roaming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was like I paid for a package where I had 150 megabytes. And so when I get that message, like, you've used 70%, I'm like, oh, Yeah, shit. like, what, what, what? No. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I needed to send an email, and I had already written it on my laptop because it was kind of long because it was a testimonial for FreeBSD Foundation or whatever. Yeah. So I tethered my laptop to my phone to send the email, kind of forgetting that I hadn't checked my email on that machine yeah. in like a week. Yeah. So it downloaded a lot of you. Yeah. So uh, I was I was fortunate when I was on the road trip. Ting uh, was working with me and gave me a MiFi to use. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was very nice because uh, Dropbox, yep. and and producer Matt was working on clips for Unfilter the entire time I was gone, and they were constantly being sunk down to my machine over Dropbox. Ooh. Yeah. TechSnap.Ting.com. Big thanks to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Okay, Mr. Jude, so let's move in. I love this next story. I think this is a really, really, really good thing. Uh, it's At least I suspect, maybe you set me straight, but I suspect it's going to give people who are concerned better visibility about the software that runs in their cars without mm-hmm. getting in trouble, correct? Yes, uh, kind of. So okay. there's two parts to this, part good, part bad. All right. And part just like, what? <laughs> anyway, so, um, you know, to start off, virtually every new car sold today has some sort of network connection. Most of us are aware of these connections because of the remarkable capabilities that place at our fingertips like hands-free communication, streaming music, advanced safety features, navigation, you know, OnStar, all that kind of stuff. 
Today's cars are basically a rolling network of small computers that control the drivetrain, braking, and other systems, not to mention you know, entertainment and navigation that we think about all the time. But you know, there are a number of other networks happening in the car that you might not realize. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, that those, all those other computers that are in the car are actually connected as well. Uh, you know, this connectivity within and between vehicles will allow transformative innovations like self-driving cars, but it also makes our cars targets for hackers. And the security researcher community can play a valuable role in helping the auto industry stay ahead of these threats by finding them first. Uh, but rather than encouraging collaboration, Congress is in discussions uh, for legislation that would make illegal the kind of research that has already helped improve the auto industry's approach to security. Mm-hmm. So after, you know, the Jeep Cherokee hack and all that, and the previous one against the Teslas and so on, uh, the House Energy and Commerce Committee began hearings on a bill to reform the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, uh, which had uh, some good stuff in the law, but, you know, uh, especially with the Volkswagen thing and other stuff. But tucked away in a section concerning cybersecurity and data collection of automobiles (laughs) Uh is a bunch of language that maybe unintentionally, could create greater risk for American drivers. Uh, So now the industry has established uh, uh, Intelligence Sharing and Analysis Center to exchange cyber threat information. And that initiative is a good start. It provides a central point of contact and collaboration between uh, what threats are out there and how uh, automakers can respond to them. And it basically gives researchers a place to send their research rather than, you know, if trying to just get a hold of someone at Ford is probably not going to be very easy. But if there's this association that's just about getting this information together and and distributing it to all the car manufacturers, that's pretty good. Because I think what we'll see is that each car manufacturer is not going to have their own esoteric system. They're all buying pre-built systems made by some small company you've never heard of. Mm. Or in the case of the the Jeep Cherokee, it's uh, QNX, which is uh, owned by BlackBerry. Um, yeah, and I think there's a pretty good chance uh, in a few years from now they may be, you may see companies like uh, Google and Apple that are selling entire systems that they they oh, buy yes, and install. Yes, uh, those ones are definitely they want to get in that market and not leave it just to BlackBerry. Yeah, uh, they're both hiring like crazy people who work in mm-hmm. the auto making field and bringing them in house as talent. Yep. So they must have something in the works. So it seems like. Uh, there's going to be a point in time where these auto manufacturers, well, they, I guess we're already there, aren't we? The, where they're taking systems that they don't create, they don't control, and they're integrating mm-hmm. them in with systems that they do create well, and control. Well, it turned out that the problem with the Jeep was not in QNX. It was the software Jeep had added on top of it. Oh, go figure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> QNX is just the operating system that they based it on because yeah. it runs on the little embedded machines that, yeah. Uh, so if you go watch BSD Now from two or three weeks ago, uh, on a different Jeep vehicle, I don't know if it was one of the ones that had the problem or not, but if you dig through the menus in the in-car navigation system, you can find software information. And because of the BSD license, it has a giant list of all the copyrights of the bits of code that they used when they wrote it. And so you can see like all a bunch of FreeBSD and OpenBSD and NetBSD developers' names in there as the, they borrowed code from all of those uh, to, to build the software. That's awesome. At least you know some of the code in there is good. <laughs> Turns out the crypto they use is the open crypto framework from uh, FreeBSD and OpenBSD. And so that code I trust. Uh, That's what good. they did with it, not so much. Yeah. And if they actually keep it up to date, if it gets mm-hmm. changed down the road, that's another challenge. Um, most of the open crypto framework hasn't changed. It's, you know, 
a reference implementation of AES, which obviously hasn't changed in years. But anyway. Uh, so yes, if done well, this uh, intelligent sharing and in, in, uh, analysis center could improve security standards among auto manufacturers and benefit customers. And I have a pair of links here uh, from Dark Reading and Security World to, with more information on that project, if you're interested. Uh, but the auto industry is taking uh, promising steps toward better security, but the bill that the U.S. is trying to push through uh, that's before the Energy and Commerce Committee would be a setback. It would make mm. it illegal for security researchers to examine code written into t today's cars and identify security vulnerabilities or manipulations designed to thwart environmental regulations. Right? So this also stops them from finding Volkswagen's shenanigans. Right? Uh, this will make our cars more vulnerable by discouraging responsible research and uh, chilling innovation in car security at a critical time. Moreover, tying the hands of white hat researchers who will not uh, who will do nothing to prevent bad actors from finding the same vulnerabilities, right? Hmm. So the law just stops the good guys, not the bad guys. Uh, so the auto industry would be much better served by following the lead of the information technology industry, uh, which has developed ways of working uh, with responsible security researchers instead of against them, right? So bug bounties with terms that say, you know, you have to tell us about it and you can't publish your research for this long until we got to fix out and and you have to follow these set of procedures. But if you do, we'll pay you. Uh, you know, is a much better way to deal with finding security bugs in cars than trying to make it yeah. illegal to oh, reverse sure. the software in the car. Well, and, and to me, doesn't it seem like the car, and essentially be just based on how it's built, is kind of always been a bit of an open platform? You could always kind of take it apart and see how it was put together and find a flaw. Uh, uh, not really. It's mostly embedded stuff that's... No, I'm not talking about the computers in the car. I'm talking about the actual mechanics of a car. Like, you know... The, uh, I guess you if can you go back to, like, the 60s and 70s, then cars were self-serviceable. Right, I'm talking... That's, that's, what I'm, that's exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, that is sort of the culture of where the car came from. And so it seems like this is very far removed from that culture. Yes. And I guess they've been getting more and more sealed up over over time. Yeah, but. like, if, if, if you've heard the discussions about farm machinery... Like combines. Yeah, so yeah. John Deere's yeah. like, you don't own that tractor. You own a license to use it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and cars are going that way, and I think we need to reverse that and have this stuff. So Yeah. Uh, they say, for years, technology companies fought a losing battle on security by threatening hackers, and now many firms have established bug bounty programs and conferences where researchers are invited to, to find and report uh, flaws in programs and products. They recognize that bringing researchers to the table and crowdsourcing solutions can be an effective way of staying ahead of the cyber threats. Stopping research before it, it can start sets a terrible precedent. Rather than making it mm -hmm. legal, Congress should try to spur collaboration between the automakers and increasingly valuable research community. In particular, maybe the law should say that you know car manufacturers have to have a program in place for vulnerabilities to be reported. Right, rather yeah. than yeah. saying that if you're going to do this, you have to have this available. Research is illegal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I like that. Uh, so separate from this, uh, so researching cars today isn't quite illegal uh, because this new law hasn't passed. Separate, uh, but some in some ways, re, uh, doing stuff to your car is illegal under the DMCA because any kind of breaking software security or reverse engineering stuff is illegal under the DMCA. Right. Luckily, the uh, head librarian of the Library of Congress, as ev they do every three years, published their new list of exemptions to the DMCA and has legalized vehicle software tinkering. Uh, so I have coverage here from ARS and NPR, but they say uh, 
the rules uh, allow you to do stuff to your car as long as uh, it's, quote, good faith security research or, quote, lawful uh, modification. Uh, So the government defines good faith security research as means of accessing a computer program solely for purposes of good faith testing, investigation, or correction of security vulnerabilities or flaws. Where such activity is carried out in a controlled environment designed to avoid any harm to individuals or the public. And where the information derived from the activity is used primarily to promote security or safety of the class of device or machines on which the computer program operates. Or those who use such devices or machines and is not used or maintained in a manner to facilitate copyright infringement. Hmm. So, in other words, if you came up with a sweet hack to make uh, an, in, an in-car entertainment system playback files or DVDs, that might not be allowed. But if you right. found or a... Or if, if you made a modification that would allow your in-car system to rip DVDs. Oh, that man, that'd be better. sweet! <laughs> or, more or more, in the future, you can imagine some in-car system that has built-in Netflix. Yeah, man. Or something. Yeah. And if you hack it so that you could record the Netflix or something, that would still be illegal. Uh, but basically, they're saying that if you're doing security research, it's okay. Although I lo- they did put the stipulation in there that you can't be doing the research on people's cars while they're driving around. Yeah, right? that's probably a good idea. Right? It has to be in a controlled environment. So it specifically doesn't allow what the, the security researchers that did the GPAC did where they had the uh, journalist out on a public highway. Yeah. Like you can only do this in your own parking lot or garage or whatever. You can't be doing it where right. you might endanger someone else. <laughs> I and think that that's probably fair. Sense. Yeah, that yeah. was... That was something those researchers and the reporter did wrong in that story. But anyway. And then for lawful modification, uh, the lawful modification of vehicle software was authorized when circumvention is a necessary step undertaken by the authorized owner of the vehicle to allow the diagnosis, repair, or lawful modification of a uh, vehicle function and where such circumvention circumvention does not constitute a violation of applicable laws, including without limitation regulations promulgated by the Department of Transportation or the EPA, and provided such that, uh, however, that such circumvention is initiated no earlier than 12 months after the effective date of this regulation. So, uh, specifically, because under both of these rulings, the law doesn't come into effect for at least a year. So while they've said mm. you're allowed to hack your car a year from now. I don't know what the point of the one-year delay is, but it's there. Maybe to give manufacturers time to respond? To complain? Wow. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. Uh, or in this case, to give uh, Congress time to make a different law that makes it illegal again. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was another possibility. That cracked my mind. Um, well, the interesting one there is that you know, it would disallow you from doing uh, changes to your vehicle that the EPA would object to. So reprogramming your vehicle to give it more performance, even though that increases, you know, right, right. the nasty output of your tailpipe or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but also the Department of Transportation. I don't know what rules they might have, but hmm. uh, I don't like. I know in Germany, I think cars are mandated to have electronically limited to a certain speed. Right. And I suppose removing that, but I don't think they have that in the U.S. So I think some of our cars are governed. That's what we call it. Right. I just don't. I don't know if it's legally required that they are governed. Yeah, I don't know either about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, Alan. Any other thoughts on that? Uh, no, that's about it for that one. Uh, I don't know. Hopefully, research can happen instead of not. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Have we not learned this lesson multiple times in a bunch of other fields already? Right. Let's stop being silly about it. Yeah. 
I've made this point a lot recently, but uh, we are moving very closely to moving uh, to depending on a lot of software automation at a, at a level we have never, ever, ever depend on it before. Cars and drones and things like that. So we more than ever need access to check on what's going on to make sure everybody's safe. Okay, Alan, let me tell you about something else. That's DigitalOcean. Man, do I love DigitalOcean. It is really your go-to Linux infrastructure in the cloud and free BSD infrastructure as well. Simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to deploy your own server. They have KVM virtualized hosting up on SSDs everywhere. It's all SSDs. And you can go from a complete system ready to go with an entire stack of software or a bare-bones installation and build it up as you need it. Say you want to work with containers or you want to work with one-click deployments of something like GitLab, all of that, that whole range is available over at DigitalOcean, and you can get started in less than 55 seconds. Pricing plans start only $5 a month for 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. They also have other really cool little ways where you can kind of uh, be slick about it. They have private networking that's available between droplets, which doesn't count against your transfer, which is super cool if you think about maybe like a front-end system and some back-end rigs. They have a really great way, a really, really great way to set all this up with the DigitalOcean interface. It's very slick, very straightforward, but yet very powerful. They managed to strike that balance between a great GUI, yet not one of those where they have to tur d turn down the power user features and really kind of water it down. They've managed to really strike the balance. I appreciate that. And then they put it even another notch up there with their straightforward API. And there's a lot of good stuff built around that API, or you can go build your own and snap it in with your own existing management infrastructure. They have data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Germany, and a brand new one and in Toronto. Toronto. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Represent Toronto. Yep. DigitalOcean yeah. is, like, proud of it too, Alan. They're like, yeah, we got one in Toronto now in the Great Northwest, <laughs> or Great Northeast, I guess. Yep. <laughs> DigitalOcean.com. Great white North. <laughs> yeah, that's what they called it. I was trying to remember what they called it. And remember, use the promo code SNAPOcean. You get a $10 credit over at DigitalOcean, and uh, that'll give you a chance to try that $5 rig out two months for free. And uh, check out their community section. Lots of really, really good tutorials. I just saw they posted this one uh, back up in their featured section, how to use SFTP secure to securely transfer files with a remote server. I bet a lot you of you out there... how many of my customers I need to send to that Exactly. <laughs> I bet a lot of people out there know how to do this, but you, but you probably work with somebody that doesn't know how to do this. This is exactly what I was thinking. And this will work for anybody. DigitalOcean just puts out some really great content. So the nice thing is, it's not only do they have one-click deployments of great application stacks in the entire operating system, but if you feel like you hit a wall, they have a lot of really good tutorials. Like, I was just kind of curious. Uh, I wanted to just double-check the installation of Sync thing that I did recently. Just check one of their tutorials, double-check it, did everything right. It's really nice, really good system, really good system, really good setup. DigitalOcean.com, use the promo code SNAPOcean. This is your go-to infrastructure. Speedy, reliable, and incredibly well-priced. DigitalOcean.com, use the promo code SNAPOcean, and a big thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Okay, so it sounds like Google was laying down a little bit of law with Symantec, coming up and saying, look, oh, yes. if you don't clean your act up, uh, you're going to be in trouble. You're going to be in trouble. What happened, Alan? Right. So if you remember a couple of weeks ago, Symantec uh, uh, had issued certificates for Google and a couple other sites uh, that weren't requested by Google. And so they were detected by Google's uh, certificate transparency system mm -hmm. as a fake certificate pretending to be Google. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, Google's not a big fan of people doing that. They did not as like you might that. expect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Google asked uh, Symantec to explain how that happened, right? 
Uh, so Google has given Symantec an offer it can't refuse. Mm-hmm. Give a thorough accounting of its ailing certificate authority process or risk being the world's most popular uh, uh, risk Chrome, which is the world's most popular browser, uh, issuing scary warnings and not supporting, not trusting Symantec anymore. Yeah, which would not be good for their brand. So this, no, would, what you could... You could say this is Google throwing around some weight here. I mean, demanding yes. to see how they act, demanding an audit of the entire process is, uh, yes. that's some well, heavy it weight. Goes much more detailed than that. So, you know, Google, it started with Google just demanding an explanation for how this happened, right? Uh, and then, uh, so the ultimatum was made uh, after, uh, five weeks after Symantec fired a bunch of people over it because uh, they were caught issuing unauthorized TLS certificates. So it turns out it seems that Symantec employees were doing this for their own gain or something. Mm. Who knows? Uh, Symantec wasn't being very clear about exactly what happened. Uh, but the misuse of certificates made it possible for people who held those certificates to impersonate HTTPS-protected Google web pages and so on. Uh, so following our notification to Symantec about the problem, Symantec published a report uh, in response to our inquiry and disclosed that there were 23 test certificates that had been issued without the domain owner's knowledge, covering five different organizations, including Google and Opera. You know, that's pretty bad. However, Google were still able to find several more questionable certificates using only the uh, certificate transparency logs and a few minutes of work. Right? So with the infrastructure Google has, they were able to detect a bunch of certificates that Symantec hadn't put in the report. Right? And so we shared these results with other root store operators uh, on October mm. 6th mm. to allow them to independently assess and verify that research to make sure Google had made a mistake because they only spent a couple minutes on it. So it seems like Symantec was trying to downplay the incident and gloss over the failings that they had had. I was like, oh, it was only 23. They were, they were test certificates. Mm. It's, you know, we fired the people that did it. It's, it's, everything's okay now. Uh, but after Google was like, well, we found a bunch more. What's going on here? Symantec performed another audit and on October 12th announced that they had found an additional 164 certificates for 76 different domains uh, that had been misissued. And worse, had found 2,458 certificates issued for domains that aren't even registered. Oh, what? Yeah. Um, How does that even happen, Alan? Well, I'm guessing they were set up for certificate uh, domains that would be registered as part of a malware attack or or something. So they Not were entirely clear. Yeah. Although some of them could have also been uh, internal stuff, you know, like .lan and and all the stuff people use for the Windows Active Directory and stuff. But it's not clear. Uh, the misissued certificates uh, represented a potentially critical threat to virtually the entire internet population because it made it possible for the holders to cryptographically impersonate the affected sites and monitor communications sent to and from the legitimate servers. Uh, this brings up serious questions about the management and oversight of the Semantic Certificate Authority. You know, they, they got into this business by buying it from VeriSign, which had a good name for doing it, and now they've just been passing it. it by the flushing side of that, it. that name. Wow. Uh, it's obviously concerning that a CA would have uh, such a long-running issue that they would not be able to assess its scope uh, after being alerted about it and conducting an audit. Right? So, so Google told Symantec, hey, fishy stuff going on. Symantec doesn't audit, only finds a couple of these. And only after Google's like, no, there's much more going on here, that they do a second audit, oh, and we found actually there's a whole bunch more. 
Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. It's like, that's not acceptable. You're a security company. Like, what the hell? <laughs> uh, so, therefore, uh, Google are firstly going to require that as of June 1st, 2016, all certificates issued by Symantec itself will be required to support certificate transparency. So they'll have oh. to announce the certificates to Google. Yeah. Uh, in this case, logging of non-extended uh, verification certificates would have provided significantly greater insight into the problem and may have allowed the problem to be detected much sooner. After this date, certificates newly issued by Symantec that do not conform to the Chromium certificate transparency, uh, transparency policy may result in interstitials or other problems when used in Google products. So you'll get a big scary warning if you try to access a Symantec site that doesn't have the uh, certificate transparency stuff after June 1st, 2016. Uh, more immediately, we are requesting that Symantec, uh, that they further update their public incident report with a post-mortem analysis that details why they did not detect the additional certificates that Google found. Yeah. Uh, why also they, why they're detail- doing their own job better. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, why, why their audit, which obviously wasn't good enough, didn't find this stuff because it obviously wasn't good enough. Uh, details of each of the failures to uphold the relevant baseline requirements and uh, extended verification guidelines that they uh, believe that the individual root cause of each of those failures. So they have to explain exactly what happened Mm -hmm. in public to everyone. Uh, Separately, we are also requesting that Symantec provide us with a detailed set of steps that they will take to correct and prevent each of the identified failures as well as a timeline of when they expect to complete such work. Because Symantec may consider this latter information to be confidential, we are not requiring that this be made public. Mm. Uh, Following the implementation of those corrective steps, we expect Symantec to undergo a point-in-time readiness assessment and a third-party security audit. And that third-party security audit will uh, establish the conformance of Symantec with each of the following standards. The web trust principles and criteria for certificate authorities. Mm. Uh, the same for SSL baseline and network security, and also the web trust principles and criteria of certificate authorities for extended validation SSL. So all the things that uh, certificate authorities are supposed to promise to do to get trusted by Google and Mozilla and Microsoft and Opera, uh, they want a third-party audit and proving that Symantec is actually meeting all those standards now. Damn, Googs. Uh, the third-party security audit must assess the veracity of Symantec's claim that at no time did private keys uh, get exposed to Symantec employees by the tools they were using. That Symantec employees could not use a tool in question to obtain certificates for which the employee controlled the private key. And that Symantec's audit logging mechanism is reasonably protected from modification, deletion, or tampering as described by Section 5.4.4 of the uh, CPS. Uh, we may take further actions as additional information becomes available to us. So Google is tired of getting screwed around by certificate authorities, and they're going to smack them yeah, down. Yeah, this this is no joke. This is no yeah. joke. Yeah. What do you think, yeah. Alan? Is Google overreaching? Google is like, we will bankrupt you if you do not smarten up. <laughs> I think it's somebody had to do it. Yeah. And, and Google happens to have slightly more clout than Mozilla. Yeah, and and uh, they uh, not only do they have uh, the uh, the resources to kind of call them out on it like that, like they have the, p- the people to look into look into all of this, but uh, they have huge market now with the Chrome browser too. So if you start, well, and it's th- this is not supposed to be Google's business. You know, the security th- author- uh, the certificate authorities are supposed to be doing this themselves. The browser 
forum shouldn't have to be trying to force this on the certificate authorities, yeah. but they are. Yeah. And yeah. It's a good point. Uh, it's good to see Google using its muscle to make the uh, CA industry smarten up and fly right. I agree. I agree. Whoa, you uh, you froze on me. Your picture, I can still hear you, but your picture froze on me. I, I noticed that. <clears throat> well, uh, Alan, I will, uh, you know what I'll do is I'll take a second here and I'll tell you about IX Systems. And uh, maybe what I'll do is uh, I'll, I'll stop and start the uh, the call while we do that. Okay. So uh, I want everybody to go over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap and uh, check out the, I oh, hello, geez, sorry. Sorry about the beep. Oh, wow. Alan, you're fast. You are fast on the trigger. Uh, ixsystems.com slash techsnap, where you can go get the landing page to learn more about IX Systems. They are a great hardware provider that is going to make sure that you get a system that runs great with an open source software solution. And to that end, they've launched a new campaign. They want to figure mm -hmm. out what people have done out there successfully with FreeBSD. And uh, we have a little video that tells you. Or FreeNAS or anything open source, really. There you go. And this video tells you more about it. Hi, I'm Brett Davis with IX Systems. We don't look at our clients as just customers with projects and budgets but rather engineers on technical missions, each with unique goals and challenges. We've been building enterprise storage and server systems for nearly 20 years, and we're continuously amazed at the creative ways that people solve problems using our systems. Nearly every day we see someone doing something brilliant with one of our technologies, be it FreeBSD, FreeNAS, TrueNAS, PCBSD, or OpenZFS. We've been so inspired by these people that we've decided to launch a campaign that we're calling Mission Complete. The purpose of this campaign is to give you the opportunity to share your stories with us about how you've completed various missions using IX Systems servers and storage, or using technologies like FreeNAS or OpenZFS to save the day. As a way of saying thank you, we'll be giving away monthly prizes for the best stories we receive. So take a minute and tell us how you've completed your missions at ixsystems.com forward slash mission complete or tweet us at ixsystems with the hashtag mission complete. We're looking forward to hearing your stories and best of luck to you on your next mission. What I like about it too is they have a submission form right there on the website. So if you want to yep. check that out, you can find it at ixsystems.com slash mission complete and they have the submission form there. There's a lot yeah. of different ways. I'm looking forward to hearing basically these will kind of be war stories except for how you solve it with hardware instead yeah. of I was going to say, there's, there's a lot of ways you could answer those questions, Alan. <laughs> you ever feel like, boy, i got a few I don't stories. want to take all the prizes right. away from everybody else. <laughs> ixsystems.com slash techsnap to learn more about ixsystems. Also have a white paper there you can grab more. Might even help you grease the wheels up the chain if you're ready to move over to a better hardware provider who has a really great, mm -hmm. great talented team and great hardware. ixsystems.com yeah, uh, slash techsnap. Make sure to send in your stories. And uh, if you get picked, uh, there's the checkbox there when you submit whether you'd be willing to do an interview about it. Uh, so you might end up on a podcast or something, and also um, or on their website. But um, text versions of the stories uh, will be included in the FreeBSD journal. Cool, very cool. And uh, possibly a few other publications. So too, check them so. out. That could be ixsystems.com/slash/mission-complete, ix or you could just do hashtag mission complete on Twitter with the with the yeah, story. Yeah, but as like I think your 140 characters isn't going to be able to tell as good a story. No, probably not. Probably not. Uh, Alan, uh, I want to also give a mention that uh, you had uh, somebody on BSD Now this week from IX Systems speaking at IX yes. Systems. It was a 113, lucky 113. Yes, uh, we talked about what's coming up in FreeNAS 10 and all the cool stuff there. Uh, but mostly we talked about NextBSD, which is importing a bunch of open source technology from Apple back into FreeBSD, including LaunchD, which mm. is a mm -hmm. more well-designed alternative to something like SystemD. But um, um. And... Uh, a bunch of other cool technologies that are going on there, uh, and it was 
a nice long interview. I think the, the whole episode there is two hours and 19 minutes. This is, we were like, wow. We even cut the roundup out and moved it to the, the next week's episode just to try to shorten it. It's too much show. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot, but it was very good. All right, Mr. Jude, so check it out. Oh, oh, excuse me, episode 113. I have a little cough switch here today because I'm losing my throat and I just bumped it. Uh, episode 113 of the BSD Now program, and you can go get that in HD, and I bet you, I bet you, by the time that's done, we're going to be done because we're about the halfway point now in the show. Mm-hmm. Probably be done before that. Yep. All right, Alan. Well, with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website or like a ninja. Starting to thread in our subreddit, techsnap.reddit.com. So Riley writes in with our first email today, and it's about setting up a file server on Debian. It says, hello, I was hoping that someone might know what to use for a file server that is based on Debian, maybe something like Samba SIFS. Just so you know, I have one terabyte backup hard drive on ButterFS and a backup backup hard drive on Extended 4, just because, you know, I'm kind of poor anyway. I want to mount the ButterFS backup drive on my Debian systems and connect the system over my LAN and expose the hard drive over it, then use it as if it were connected to any of the client computers. I'm guessing this is sort of how a NAS works? Anyway, not only do I want to browse files on it, I also want to be able to mount, bli- uh, mount bind a client's computer local system to the remote Deb bootstrap file directory and enable 32-bit root on my system. In other words, a 32-bit jail. This is mostly new or old Windows games that will run in Wine, so proprietary software and other Linux software that's 32-bit only. I could do this easily, or could I do this easily, or should I keep my root on my local machine only? Also, I'd like to set up and enable OpenVPN to be able to connect directly to my LAN from the outside world so that I don't have to expose my whole hard drive over the internet. Maybe in the future, I'll want to connect my Android smartphone to it. I'm wondering about the best, most secure way to do it, and what's obviously the toughest question for me, and what's going to be able to answer, uh, uh, which is obviously the toughest question for me to be able to answer. I have zero experience setting up OpenVPN or Samba, but I guess I can read through the man pages over and over again. Thanks for any help. Riley. Uh, well, Samba's not hard to set up. Uh, you pretty much can use the defaults, and then at the bottom, you have a chunk where you say, here's the share name, and here's the directory, and whether I want it to be read-only or read-write. Um, a 32-bit root is nothing like a 32-bit jail. They're completely different, but anyway. Um, I don't know much about Linux, but why does he need a 32-bit root? Like, do, does Linux not have something like FreeBSD's lib32 where you can just run 32-bit binaries? Oh, no, he's just being fancy, I think. Okay. Yeah, okay. I think he just wants to be fancy. Uh, yeah, um, there's, there's, there's no... Uh, there's really no inherent v- value to it other than keeping all of that stuff contained, I suppose. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, you can you can have uh, so if your all of your consumers of it are going to be Linux, you can use NFS. That's what I was uh, thinking. Or if you want it to work across, you know, Windows and Linux and and Mac, then Samba is the best way. I think he's, uh, I think unless he needs specific Windows compatibility, he should use NFS. Well, he NFS. specifically said Windows games running in Wine and so on. So yeah. if he doesn't need Windows, just use NFS. Uh, and if you want Windows, then use Samba and SIFS. Although yeah. I don't know how well mounting that on Linux works. What's that? Uh, mounting a Samba share on a Linux client. Is if you install the Samba client package, then pretty much right. everything you need is there. It just yeah, I just I don't know sifts. how long they stay and how it deals if the network oh and oh oh yeah yeah if the network breaks it can be a little you know it can right. yeah but also can NFS but yeah. yeah so NFS will probably be slightly faster if mm. uh, you're using all Linux 
All right, if you're not using all Linux, then uh, use Samba. Um, and also, this NFS will be slightly easier to set up because you add one line to a file instead of yeah. like five lines to a file. Yeah. <laughs> the the Samba setup though is really straightforward. Uh, yes. And, and uh, so there's a if you get stuck and something isn't working, there's a very useful command called test parm. One word: yes. test parameters. Test parm, and it'll yep. kick out whatever the mistake was that you made in the Samba config. Well, basically, what it will do, it will spit out the resulting config. Right. The, all the Yeah. Right. It's like all the defaults are there, and then any changes you made, and it will. Yeah. It's actually uh, one of the examples I use in my uh, what we need to have universal configs in FreeBSD is we need a command like that, especially since we're going to have multiple includes and so on. It's like I need to be able to tell what the final config that the app end up getting looks like. Yeah, it can be a bit of a, it, you know, if you're coming at it from a Windows 10 or Windows 8 client machine, there's sometimes some issues with with signing and things. It just, if you can use NFS, it's going to be a lot easier. Yeah. Uh, somebody in the chat room said they had terrible luck with Samba and Windows. Uh, I'm currently running uh, this Windows computer that I'm doing the podcast from. Uh, it has only a small, I think, 120 gig SSD for the operating system. And everything runs over the network to my FreeNAS or uh, FreeBSD ZFS server. Like I, all my Steam games actually live on a file server in the basement, and I launch them on my computer from here, uh, because my network is a gigabit, so it's 120 megabytes a second. That's as fast as a spinning hard drive would normally be, and because it's ZFS down there, uh, because of the art cache and the fact that I'm using six disks, I actually get faster read speeds, and so my latency is almost less than it would be from mm -hmm. coming from the hard drive, mm -hmm. and so games run perfectly fine over the network. Do you have any recommendations from just like a practical implementation? If he's going to do a VPN on his network, where should he do it and anything like that? Right. Uh, depends. If your router is just a regular off-the-shelf thing, then yeah. probably run OpenVPN on the file server. Otherwise, run it on the router. Uh, but Or wherever you want the thing to have access to. But on the file server should be fine. You can set up OpenVPN and then access it from there and then you will have to tell Samba to listen on the interface that you create for the VPN. I think by default, it doesn't listen on any interfaces, so you have to tell it, you know, this is the one that, you know, this is my LAN, I want to allow people to access the files over it, and that's the internet. Don't let the internet access my files, please. <laughs> right, and then also don't forget about, don't, don't forget to look into the SMB password command, you'll have to enable the user yep. you're going to connect remotely to use Samba and give them a yes. Samba password. And yes, because Samba needs the plain text version of the password uh, in order to generate the Windows hash of the password, so that Windows will be able to authenticate it. It can't. Uh, Windows can't deal with a regular hash password that you have in Linux. So mm -hmm. uh, you end up with um, the real username, like the files end up getting owned by the Samba user that you specify for the share or whatever, or like you know the login name of the of the person on the Windows machine. But the password has can will, can be different, which can be very confusing. But mm -hmm. it's it's mm -hmm. just a little detail that once somebody tells you that's what's happening, you're like, oh right, okay. Yes, yeah. So I wanted to mention that. Um, so you probably could run the 32-bit ch roots off of that. I don't know if you'd want to, but you know, I don't know exactly why you're doing all the things you're doing. So uh, yeah, the truth seems like a little excessive. But yeah, if you just want to experiment, it should work. You mm -hmm. know, I I run all my Windows applications off my E drive, which is actually a set of S share in my basement. 
Nice. Speaking of ZFS, maybe uh, we can help out uh, our longtime listener who says he loves the show. I have a ZFS question with a series of related sub-questions. After a ZPool scrub, I run ZPool status and the CK sum column, I'm assuming check sum column, yep. I've got a number six, and in brackets it says repairing. What does that mean? And what uh, and what extended uh, what does extended repairing really mean? Or does it is repairing just copying blocks to endure a location? I've got uh, two in the same column, but no repairing in brackets. What does that mean? Have I lost data? Right. So when it says six repairing, that means that uh, you can see that he's got three sets of mirrors here. In the third mirror, one of the drives had a bunch of checksum errors and is currently repairing. So what it means is the block failed the checksum, and, I'm, and ZFS is copying that same block from the disk that's not broken and fixing it. And now I would expect that repairing thing to go away after a couple of minutes. Mm. Uh, and he cut off the top half of the zpool status, so it's hard to tell what's happening there. But by repairing, it means I'm using the redundancy I have to replace the block that had the bad checksum. Mm. Uh, but as you can see, he had six on the one drive and two on the other drive. And then at the top level, for the mirror itself, it shows two. So that means there are actually two blocks where both hard drives failed to check some. And there's no way to get the data back. Mm. Uh, so if you do zpool status minus F, it will actually list which files were broken uh, and how to solve those. Hmm. Okay, good to know. Now, there's a couple more questions. He says, can I scrub a whole physical disk, not just the port portion that's been written to? So if, for, say, some reason down the line, he could find uh, other bad sectors before he tries to write data there. Does it help if I fill the pool with data using the DD command, then scrub the volume? Something like, you know, it gives an example of what he would do. Thanks for the answers, and keep up the great work. Okay, so scrubbing the whole pool, including the unwritten part, not yet. But interestingly, uh, Chris and I talked about in this week's uh, BSD Now, there um, a features being added for ZFS for when you're using VMware or Amazon Web Services where... Uh, you have a thin provision disk. So in the VM, the disk that you have your zpool on isn't actually real. And it's it, the first time you access each sector, it takes a lot longer than normal because underneath, the hypervisor is having to go and find space somewhere to allocate that block. And so ZFS is gaining a feature called Eager Zero, where slowly in the background, it will go through and touch every block and write zeros to it so that that sector will be full speed when you go to use it. And that could be used to do what you're talking about, to actually, you know, after you create a pool, slowly go through and write zeros to every sector and double-check them so that you would know whether the sectors were bad or something. Uh, so that doesn't exist currently, but it's an interesting idea. And, uh, you know, OpenZFS loves patches. So mm. <laughs> Very nice. Um, so uh, filling the pool, I would recommend against very strongly. Mm, okay. <laughs> you don't want to fill a, a ZFS pool. That doesn't usually work out so well. Although you can fill it to like 75% or something, but uh, you'd have to fill it, then scrub it, and then go. Um, I wouldn't bother. You don't really need to use dev random. You just use dev zero uh, because that will actually make an error stand out more, right? Because it's zeros instead of random data. So mm -hmm. if you read back anything that's not a zero, then hey, yeah, that's very, a yeah, very good point. Uh, but the big point here is that ZFS will never return corrupted data. It will instead return an error because your application would rather you know, know that there's a problem rather than think everything's fine but have gotten back data that isn't the same as what Garbage. I read yeah. down. Right. right. Uh, you know, for example, in a database, if there's a single flip bit, all of a sudden, you know, somebody, some user is marked as being an employee instead of a user and they can do things they're not supposed to, or worse, the other way around. And an employee is now marked as a user and can't do anything. Uh, 
again, you'd rather have an error. Um, so yeah, zpool status minus f will list the files where those that corruption occurred and if there's a problem. And also the top part that you cut off will explain overall whether you should care. All right, so uh, Jason writes in, long-time listener. He says he's a 20-year pro in the field and an avid as FreeBSD ZFS user. He wanted to answer a few questions that came into the show. Uh, like, uh, listener Corey wants an encrypted remote file system from last week's episode with no local copies. A few years ago, he says, I did nearly that with IncFS on Dropbox. Instead of IncFS, which isn't particularly secure now, I'd look at something like EcryptFS. Dropbox leaves local copies, which Corey doesn't want, so he'd use... Bitcasa with caching disabled or WebDAV. Bitcasa, by the way, is one of the best kept secrets in cloud storage. A terabyte of offsite storage accessible on Mac, Windows, and Linux, but making a minimal space on the clients. Imagine Dropbox over NAS instead of RSync. Linux client is a, b- a bit flaky at this point, and they don't support the BSDs, uh, but you could probably get it through Linux compatibility. But overall, it's great service, and I'm happy to pay 100 a year for it with one terabyte of Dropbox. Uh, it's uh, one terabyte of Dropbox uh, box or G drive is nice. You'd have to use a lot with Selective Sync, in which case you don't have access to all your data all the time, which is very true. That's where I'm at. Responding to my question about why the heck would you want a jailbreak? I've been asking that recently, like as we start talking about all these vulnerabilities that affect the jailbroken phones. He says, I jailbreak almost every iDevice I own. The most compelling reasons? Number one is Bash. He wants a full terminal access to the phone's OS and file system with all Unix goodies, even things like a new screen. <laughs> okay, all right. I'm down with that. Firewall IP, a, power, a powerful firewall, a lot like a little snitch on uh, OS X. Oh, that's pretty uh, cool. Yeah, all iOS devices have uh, PF, the BSD firewall built in. That's they import that from OpenBSD. That's pretty neat. I didn't know that. Uh, and MyWi, a tethering app which also does Wi-Fi to Wi-Fi sharing. Last time I was on vacation, the hotel only allowed two Wi-Fi devices on the room, so I used MyWi to hook up our laptops, iPads, Kindles, etc. I also tether to cell connections if your cell plan isn't supported, but the carriers can detect that. A different tethering app, PDANet, is supposed to hide your tethering from the carriers, but I haven't tried it, so I can't say for sure. He says, remember, Harpley Jailbreak Store, the Jailbreak Store had a fix within three hours of the announcement. There's lots of other reasons, but I don't want to go without it. Thanks for reading. Keep up the great shows, Jason. Cool. Nice to get some feedback for Corey there, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I says he's also a big fan of BSD Now and the TechSnap program. So there you go. Uh, very nice. Thank you, Jason, for the follow-ups. If you'd like to send your emails in, go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and choose TechSnap from the drop-down and send it in or TechSnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com directly. And uh, I, will pr- I will attempt to pronounce your name correctly if I can. I think I got Jason's right. You never know. All right, Alan, with the TechSnap feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that just didn't quite fit at the top of the show, but we still want to go over them and give you some links to follow up on your own. Some of these links came from our secret intelligence agency, also known as our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. I don't, I don't know. Actually, we do have something from the CIA coming up later in the roundup. Mm-hmm. But first, our first story just makes me shake my head, Alan. 13 million plain text passwords belonging to a web host company were leaked yes. online. This now, is in, from in this 00 case, This is from 000 web host, Yeah. which A, the name suggests that they are so old that it's from back when like Yahoo was a directory, not a search engine, and... Having zero 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 made you sorted to the top of the list. Oh my gosh! <laughs> um, this is and, like AAA kind of thing. Yeah. And, and they, uh, in this particular case, they provide free web hosting, so lots of people have signed up, and yeah. And they got <laughs> all of their passwords leaked. Yeah, 
but I'm guessing some of those accounts are from the 90s. Yeah, yeah, right? probably. It's just, they only, they've just had this one giant database. Probably a good chance million. people are still using that same password, though, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I don't know that you could call them 13 million customers because they're giving their service away for free, but yes, 13 million users. Yeah. Uh, not all of which were probably active, uh, but in the postmortem, they basically said that uh, they had an, quote, old version of PHP, which I'm assuming meant really, <laughs> really, really old, uh, and they exploited a flaw in order to gain access, and then... So you mean it was an advanced persistent cyber threat then, Alan? By a 15-year-old? Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. Well, here's another one. Uh, the UK's National Crime Agency is hunting cyber attackers who stole more than $20 million, no, actually not dollars, uh, from yeah. British bank accounts. Yeah, 20 million pounds, which yeah. would be almost $30 million, I think. Yeah. Um, but basically, it was man-in-the-browser software. Oh, but, really? Uh, yeah, basically, your computer get a Trojan, and then when you logged in, it would uh, hijack your session and uh, yeah. take your money. Yeah, yeah. So that, so they got the users to install the Trojan yes. somehow. How did Drydex work? The Drydex Trojan uh, infected the computer through a malicious Microsoft Office document. So you got emailed the document and opened it, and shame on you. Uh, typically disguised as an invoice or email uh, to the victim, and then the malware relied on tricking people into installing onto their machine rather than exploiting some hole in the operating system or drive-by download or flash or something like that. So this one, um, wow. I don't want to say that all the people that got this deserved it for opening an attachment, but let's just say don't open attachments of fake invoices that you weren't expecting. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, it would then eavesdrops on people entering their bank account details and send the information back to the attackers. Uh, banks have software running constantly in the background looking for suspicious transactions, but criminals are adopting patterns that are not flagged. Specifically, they proxy through and use your computer to submit the request to the bank so that it looks like it's coming from your house and so your bank isn't tipped off that it's, hey, it's oh, Ukraine. I like whatever, that. Right? That's a clever one. Mm-hmm. Uh, the National Computer Authority has tried to sinkhole the Trojan, but basically uh, black holing the traffic sent to the IP address that uh, would send the the stolen credentials, so that the attackers won't be able to get any more uh, from people that are uh, infected. Well, there you have it, Alan. This next story makes me kind of uncomfortable. You ready for it? Sure. The DOJ says that uh, Apple owns the iOS software, so they should be able to have a backdoor and get stuff unencrypted because it's not the user that owns the operating system. It's Apple, ergo Apple should be required to unlock it. Uh, And, of course, this has been going back and back uh, as Apple is in court over this. Now, here's the issue. The phone in question, this is is kind of a go figure. The phone in question in the court case is running iOS 7, and Apple freely, well, has admitted in court, they do technically have the capability of cracking things that are uh, encrypted on iOS 7. They said they do not have the technological capability to do it on devices iOS 8 or 9 and above. Well, if they installed a backdoor into iOS, they would suddenly gain such an ability. Right. So the court is, well, you own the software, you can build in the backdoor, you can give us access. So this is going back and forth right now. And I, the reason why I just wanted to pull this up is because I think, if, well, A, if the government succeeds with this argument, it opens up a really, really massive precedent, right? Uh, because just about every piece of software out there that's on any mainstream software is licensed this way. So this is a massive precedent if they set this. Uh, that's, that's why I kind of wanted to draw attention to it. There's not really much more to say than this because it's a slow, ongoing court process. Mm-hmm. But it could be nasty. All right, you ready to talk about IBM's Watson? Sure. The world's f- worst spam hosting ISP? Oh, I, oh, I thought IBM. <laughs> Where'd you see Watson? <laughs> I thought this was about IBM Watson because there is a story no, about IBM Watson later. Okay. But, yeah. No, this is where... Uh, so there used to be this hosting company called The Planet. 
Mm, I remember. Uh, they were terrible. Uh, and they were also used by, what was it, Ustream, uh, is where they got hosted their original servers for their, when live streaming was first a thing. And right, right. Anyway. So it was a place that rented servers cheaply, and it was full of botnets and attack software and spam and all the horrible things. Then it eventually got acquired by Softlayer, which had a slightly better reputation, but still had the problem of they have automated uh, instant deployment. So as soon as you pay them, they set up the server and give it to you, mm. which makes it really good for spamming because you set up the server on, say, Friday night, spam the hell out of it by the time anybody comes into work at Softlayer on, uh, right. on Monday morning. To shut you down, you've already sent all your spam and you can shut it down and you don't care. Plus, you pay for the server with a stolen credit card, so you're not even on the hook or being tracked or anything. Uh, well, then software got bought by IBM. And now, with all the acquisitions, IBM makes up a bunch of these hosting companies that are all on the top of the list for the worst offenders for spam. Okay. I love it. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and basically, they're saying... Uh, Apparently, what caused the spike? So, Softlayer had been getting better about Recognize it. Recognize the others. And then there was a big spike when they opened up a data center in Brazil and started allowing Brazilian customers more of them. And basically, they, in order to get more customers, they laxened the background checking and, and stuff that they normally do before they let you have an account. Like, uh, oftentimes when you sign up, you have to like show pictures of the credit card and stuff like that to to try to combat the stolen credit cards and so on. But they relaxed these requirements uh, to try to build up more users, and uh, it's kind of blowing up in their face. Mm -hmm. Surprise, surprise. Uh, yeah, and it's basically by, you know, uh, the other problem they were having was customer would set up a machine, start spamming with it. The spam people would tell uh, software about it. Software would shut it down. That same person would then sign up again and get assigned <laughs> a, a new block of IPs and do it again, and they get shut down. And then they sign up a third time, and they would get the original set of IP addresses again. Because they would just get recycled, right? And so then it would look like software hadn't actually ever shut them down in the first place. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, and so on like that. Alan, get your patches ready because Joomla users have a patch out. Uh, there is a bug that was uh, uh, made a SQL injection vulnerability um, of a possibility. And on Thursday, the folks at Joomla re released version 3.4.5. The vulnerability allowed attackers to execute malicious code on the servers using Joomla and was first introduced in version 3.2 in November of 2013. So Joomla is on an estimated 2.8 million websites. So since it's out there, that's kind of an important one. Because the vulnerability is found in the core module, it doesn't require any extensions. All websites that use uh, Joomla version 3.2 and above are vulnerable to this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, super And it could uh, be used to take over the whole website. So... The TechSnap program recommends you patch your S. That's what we mm -hmm. recommend. All right. So our next story in the roundup, the EFF says we found 100 plus license plate readers wide open on the internet. No kidding. No kidding. This is interesting. So this, uh, this story was originally uh, published uh, by the EFF and ours picked it up. And they say that uh, earlier this year, the EFF learned that more than 100 ALPR cameras were exposed online to totally open web pages accessible by anyone with a browser. <laughs> yeah, as if we weren't complaining about the uh, the lack of privacy and so on already from these devices. No kidding, right? And then they're like, "Oh, we're just going to plonk them on the internet so anybody can read your license plates and find out where you've been." Yeah, yeah, that's that is the worst. It's like putting like baby cameras on the only worse because it's. Yep. Yeah. 
All right. The Wall Street Journal's subscriber base may have a bit of a problem. This is according to Hacks.com. Boy, that's a hell of a, of a domain name. The CEO of Dow Jones, the parent company of the Wall Street Journal, has released a statement confirming the company's subscriber database was the target of a hack. The credit card details and contact information of 3,500 subscribers. That's it? May have been compromised. Yeah, that... I wonder if it's just like people that have re-upped their subscription in the, a week or something. I cannot be the subscriber base of the Wall Street Journal. Well, no, it's not the whole subscriber base, but it's just the ones that they think are compromised. Maybe they're either they're downplaying the number just to make it less of a news, or it was something like it was only the, you know, we only keep the credit card numbers unsecured or whatever for a week, or somebody broke in and set up a, a siphon and only got new credit cards as they were entered. Yeah, then, payment card information then, for fewer than 35 individuals who would have been accessed according to the statement. That's interesting. Huh. If you did not receive such a letter, we have no indication that your financial information was involved. Yeah, so it is just a subset. All right, Alan. Well, I think this is a first for the TechSnap program. Our next story in the roundup comes from the CIA at CIA.gov. <laughs> yeah. So this is a declassified manual called the Simple Sabotage Field Manual. Nice. Uh, this is from back uh, in World War II where the CIA was called the OSS. But this is a field manual number three, and it describes how to conduct sabotage against the enemy. This is great. This has got to be a fascinating read. Con- mm-hmm. Cooling systems, electric motors, boilers, like oil and lubrication. They got it all broken out here. Uh, wow, this is great. They remove labels from cars needing to be repaired, put them in cars with good order. Leave- There's all kinds of things, all kinds of like little ways to do chaos. Batteries and oh my gosh, Alan, this is a good find. That's yeah. a that's a good link. So it was uh, recently declassified. Uh, all right, next story in the round of the NSA advisory sparks some concerns of a secret advance ushering in the crypto apocalypse. Well, wow, that's amazing. Once electric curve crypto was viewed as a, as a savior, now the future looks doomed. That's intense, Alan. Yeah, What's going on with this? I don't know that anything is actually going on, but we'll have to see. Yeah. Uh, but basically, the NSA has put an advisory that hey, we should start figure something out for quantum computers because that might break all of our elliptic curve in RSA. And it's like, okay. <laughs> uh, it's like, does that mean that the NSA has something quantum that does break RSA? I don't think so, but it's hard to say. Uh, yeah. Or they're, well, you know, they're going to be working on it, but huh. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. And then the last story in the roundup, the leap second is part of a debate. You know yes. what? This and daylight savings, I agree. I agree. What's, yep. what's the big debate, though, Alan? Uh, well, the debate is whether we should get rid of the leap second. Yes. Yeah. There we go. Uh, so in addition to... Uh, yeah, so there's this article here, and it talks about how at the World Radio Communication Conference, which goes on for like three weeks, it's a long conference. Uh, I can imagine a three-week BSD conference. It would be glorious. <laughs> it would be, um, <clears throat> be glorious. It'd be crazy, though. Like yeah. The... We wouldn't be able to have many more conferences after that. No, you'd be yeah, you'd be spent. Or uh, people would only show up for a week of it or something. Like it would, it would go on for three weeks. That's but for sure. No, m- most people wouldn't stay there for the whole. Th- anyway, um, it cites a bunch of different articles, but it also uh, specifically quotes uh, Paul Henningkamp, the FreeBSD developer. Uh, he has an article over at ACM there called the uh, the One Second War, <laughs> uh, where it talks about the same issue and advocates for getting rid of the leap second. Huh. Uh, basically, it comes from the fact that originally uh, we gauge the length of a second based on astronomy, right? Uh, because that's when the you know the British and American navies uh, built observatories and and kept tables of 
the rotation of the Earth so that they could do navigation by the stars, right? That's how, you know, it was the only way to figure out where you were when you were on a ship that wasn't within sight of land. Uh, and so that's the definition we used for a long time. But then when we started, uh, when we had railroads and stuff and we invented time zones, it was like, well, we don't need an observatory in every little city now because we have a way to just send to, you know, we collect all the data at the Naval Observatory in, in Norfolk in the U.S. or uh, where is it in the U.K.? Uh, Greenwich. Um, and then we can just send that information out over telegraph. Uh, but anyway, the we've defined the way a second is based on an atomic clock now, right? Which is exactly the same all the time. But the Earth's rotation isn't exactly the same. Right. Because friction from the moon on the oceans with gravity and stuff causes us to kind of speed up and slow down sometimes. So uh, up to twice a year, we do these leap seconds where we cause a certain minute to either be 59 seconds or 61 seconds in order to get back in sync with what the planet's rotation is. And it's like, well, if we just stopped caring and used actual seconds for everything, a <laughs> um, hundred years from now, maybe it would add up to a minute. Yeah. Do we care about being a minute off over the course of 100 years? <laughs> I, I say no. I say no, Alan. I say we learn to let it go. That's what I yes. say. Let it go. And I say kill time zones as well. Mm -hmm. Everything UTC. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, and no I more AM, PM. Everything in 24 hours. I'm, I'm down with that too. I am it's across like the board. This is a platform. Hard, it would be very easy to teach people that. This is, a, this is the TechSnap platform. I've been, I have been advocating for this for years. So I say we just uh, we get it done. Mr. All right. doesn't even know what time it is in UTC right now. No. Well, I do have I have software that tells me, but you know why? It's like I don't feel like I just feel like it should all be the same time everywhere. And I realize yeah. that means that well, it actually is the same time everywhere. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. We ought to just be doing what it really is. Just admit yes. it. We're just fooling ourselves. Alan, uh, techsnap.reddit.com is where people go to submit stories. Any kind of topics they want to see covered, great you know, great spot to submit stuff for the roundup. Uh, JupiterBroadcasting.com slash contact is where you go to email the show and get your question into the show. And JBLive.tv is where you go to watch it live at uh, 1 p.m. Pacific normally, uh, which yes. is now we've got Daylight Savings coming up, Alan. Right. So that's actually going to change it this Starting this Sunday. Sunday. Mm -hmm. Right. Which okay. is awful. So 4 o'clock is... 2000 UTC right now, but after DST, it will switch to being 2100 UTC. But if you're in Europe, your time has already changed. Yep. So. Sorry, Europe is confusing. This week, TechSnap <laughs> would have been an hour earlier. Yeah, yes. Uh, but next week, TechSnap will be back at the same time you used to. You're right. And uh, your time zone has, has switched. And to Once. make things even worse, I decided to do last on Sunday this week, which is just a horrible idea. Uh, JupiterBroadcasting.com slash calendar to get all of that stuff in your local time. They'll just take care of it automatically. Yes. And don't forget links to everything we covered in this week's show notes over at JupiterBroadcasting.com. Just look for episode 238, scroll down past the download links, and you'll find everything. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week.